Hello and welcome to this latest episode of California Dreaming. I have a few notes about the show before we get started. This is an independent production. We have always been ad-free and there are a number of ways that you can help support. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your favorite shows on. It really does give us more visibility and discoverability. You can follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you are in need of more content to get you through your day, you can subscribe to the show's Patreon, where for as little as $1 a month, you can unlock dozens and dozens of full-length episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. And it is the one place that has not been affected by inflation, well, with the exception of the $1.50 hot dog and drink combo at Costco, and I intend to keep it that way. But just know that your contribution to Patreon is how I keep this show going and the doggies treat jars full. So it's always a good cause. You can also make a one-time donation through PayPal using my email, californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Tiffany C., Michael M., Dawson L., Angelique D., Melinda E., Melissa F., Ank K., Lynn C., Hope J., Linda S., Brent E., Brenda M., and Tony M. for either joining Patreon, coming back, raising their pledge, or donating through PayPal. Before we get started, I have an announcement and a warning about this episode. This case involves not only the actions, but the recorded ramblings of a sadistic sexual predator and murderer. Because of how graphic the recordings of this man are, I was only really able to listen to a few excerpts of the least worst portions of his tapes. However, after I found a full transcript of it, I can see why it's not easy to find if it can be found at all on the internet. The transcripts are awful enough to have to read, much less having to have to listen to them coming from the actual killer himself. While I almost always record transcripts myself, I asked around on social media if there was any American male with recording equipment who would be willing to read some of the things that this man recorded himself saying, and the first person to volunteer is someone that I know that you all know and love, the extremely talented host of the Defense Diaries podcast, Bob Mata. Yes, we've got a celebrity guest in the house. You are going to hear him as the killer throughout this episode, reading portions of this man's thoughts. The worst parts of these recordings, I'm going to describe to you myself as tactfully as I can as we get to it. But I will post the link to the Reddit that has the transcripts in its entirety. It'll be the link right above the one that has the tracing that the killer made of his own penis with pubic hair attached to it, apparently, and autographed that's up for auction on truecrimeauctionhouse.com. It's awful, and so I just want you to consider yourselves warned. Three audio tapes were discovered inside a 1965 Ford Fairlane belonging to a fugitive from California back in 1991. They captured the depraved ramblings of a serial killer. I left her there like garbage, what she was after I got done with her. 
When investigators made this discovery, they immediately wondered if there was anything captured on those tapes that were related to the killings that they had been connecting to this man. The list of victims attributed to him had been growing. It was just taking time for investigators to connect all the dots. These tapes would amount to what would be considered a diary of sorts, an account of the sick, perverted thoughts of a predator. It's unlike anything we've ever heard before or since. These are the things that creep into your worst nightmares. There are a handful of cities in what makes up the Coachella Valley area of Riverside County, California. But when this particular event took place in the early 1990s, it was very different. Not as developed as it is today. And the city of Coachella itself is best known now for its annual festival ever since its inaugural year of 1999. It was to be the West Coast answer to the over-commercialized Woodstock 1999, which would make for a good disaster episode. And Coachella had become known as the anti-Woodstock. It has since itself become accused of becoming the antithesis of what it was meant to be, since it can be costly and is often swarming with social media influencers and celebrities, not celebrities. Anyway, I digress. 30 years ago, the crime rate in the area was relatively rare, and the Riverside County Sheriff's Department worked diligently to maintain that. Compared to what was going on to the west in Los Angeles County, violent crimes were low, as were burglaries and other property crimes. After her husband passed away relatively young, Fatima Van was left to raise her two children by herself. Fatima was determined to pick up the pieces of her life, and part of that was to move out of the city and out to the quiet desert area in the Coachella Valley, to the city of Indio, a place that she felt was safe because the population was sparse and the area was generally peaceful and quiet. By the time she moved, the youngest of her two daughters was still living at home with her, Yolanda, who was only 16 years old then. Fatima was working as a certified nurse's assistant, and she and Yolanda were taking classes at the local community college called Desert College. They were taking child development classes and an auto shop class out of a desire for Fatima to fix up her own car, which was a 1981 280ZX. It may have been a Nissan, but it was probably a Datsun. Her car pretty much became the class project as they were learning and working on rebuilding its engine. Fatima's car was like her third baby behind her two girls. She loved that car and she wanted to work on it on her own. But like I said, the class as a whole decided that they would take apart the engine and put it back together that semester. However, this caused Fatima to have to ask friends and fellow classmates for rides to and from those evening classes that she was taking. On the evening of Monday, April 22, 1991, Fatima went to class without her daughter. Yolanda wasn't feeling well and opted to stay home that night. After auto shop class, 
Fatima would typically have arrived home sometime around 10 p.m. But when class was over and everyone left for the night, she never arrived home. In the middle of the afternoon the following day, Tuesday, April 23rd, a woman arrived at the Indio Police Department. She walked up to the reception area window. And you know how there's that little tray that visitors and the clerk working behind the window used to pass papers or other things back and forth to one another? This visitor slid several Polaroid photos through this tray as she explained how she happened upon a dead body, a woman, in the desert as she was driving. Remember, this is 1991, so nobody really had phones with them, but this woman happened to have a Polaroid camera with her so she decided that it might be best if she took those pictures just in case something happened, or maybe if they didn't believe her, and she reported her discovery in person. As I said, violent crimes of this nature were a rarity back then in this area, but it wasn't unheard of for killers to use the barren desert as a body dump either. When a homicide occurs and a killer wants to try and conceal what they've done, the thinking is that their victim won't be discovered for a while, if at all, if they dispose them in these types of out-of-the-way locations. These killers may not realize that if they're driving out there to this isolated location, they're probably not the only ones, and bodies may not be found right away, but more often than not, they are eventually found. In this instance, the body was found in less than 24 hours from the time that it was left there. By 3 p.m. that afternoon, just a couple of miles away from their own headquarters, detectives were at the location where the body lay. She had nothing on, with the exception of one shoe, and that was pretty much all they had. Other than some tire tracks thought to belong to the vehicle that left her there, there was very little else near the body. No clues otherwise as to who she was or how she ended up there. It was immediately clear that this woman's killer didn't just murder her. He mutilated her as well. She was stabbed multiple times in the chest and in the neck. Her killer had also carved the words, I heart Jesus, on her lower back. The J-E-S was on her back. The U was on her left buttock, and the S was on the right. It was apparent to detectives that they were dealing with one very disturbed individual. This was going to be much different than your average everyday murder. The first thing that they needed to do was figure out who this woman was. They would need that information before they'd be able to start looking for the person who made her this way. My first victim was Fanny Van. She was five foot, born September the 4th, 1952. She's 130 pounds, brown eyes, black hair. I met her at the College of the Desert. First time I met her, I didn't see much in her, body-wise anyway. Then she started working on her car. Then I saw that she had something I wanted. Her body. When she wore her shorts one day, oh, did she show off that fine little ass and those sweet legs? 
I tried to look down the front of her blouse and see those fine, medium-sized black breasts. I asked her if I could take her home because she was standing around, and she said yes. She had to go back to tell the girls I was going to take her, that she had another ride. Yolanda worried about her mom when she failed to come home that Monday night. She worried for all of Tuesday. Normally, Yolanda went with Fatima, but on that night, she stayed home sick. They would start class around 6 p.m. and they'd be dismissed by 9.30. It wasn't like Fatima to just up and go do anything without letting her daughters know. She was very reliable, dependable, She was dedicated to her job at the hospital. She was going to school to better her life and the lives of her children and her grandchildren. There was nothing that would keep Fatima away from her family. There was nothing about her lifestyle that would suggest she would sneak off for a night to go do whatever without letting anybody know. Something had to have kept her away. Her daughter, Yolanda, was up all night with that nagging feeling there was something very wrong. As the morning came, Yolanda called her mom's work to she if she was there, only to find that Fatima had not shown up for her shift. She called one of their classmates to see if they had any idea where her mother was at. That person had not seen her since they left class the evening before. And you know what's really heartbreaking about the situation for this young girl worried about her mother? Most of the time when a family member or a loved one fails to show up where they're supposed to be, people typically try to report them missing to the police right away, only to be told that they have to wait 24 or 48 hours. I think I've even heard as long as 72 hours before they would be able to file the report. Back in the day, if a child was missing, they could have been a runaway. If an adult was missing, they had the right to do so. It's different today because of how present, immediate, and connected people are. This wasn't the case prior to the 2000s. Yolanda, at only 16 years of age, already had it in her mind that she needed to wait 24 hours, so she didn't even bother going to the police until those 24 hours was up, which would be at 10 p.m. that Tuesday night. Meanwhile, the police were dealing with this woman in the desert. The information that they had about this unidentified woman was painfully very little. She was African-American. They had her height and her weight, which was pretty average. They had a shoe. But the most distinctive thing about her is that she had one gold tooth with a four-leaf clover on it. That was the information that investigators were able to put out there for all the other local law enforcement agencies in case someone who matched that description was reported missing or being sought. The detectives were hopeful, but the way this was looking, the isolated nature of the location where she was found, and very little that they had in the way of evidence and clues, had them worried that this was a case that might just grow cold. As they carefully searched the areas surrounding the location of the body, they did find other possible pieces of evidence. Some pieces of jewelry, some articles of clothing, a blouse, leggings or tights, and a bra. The woman had extensions in her hair, and it appeared that some of them 
had been forcibly removed and were scattered around nearby. This woman had been discovered laying face down. When she was eventually turned over, it was then investigators saw that she had suffered a single gunshot wound in her head. Stabbed, shot, mutilated. For detectives, it was bone chilling. Whoever did this was brutal. He was violent, and clearly he was dangerous. They'd never seen anything like this, and they did not think that this was this killer's first rodeo. And there was a very real fear that this wouldn't be his last. They have got to figure out who this woman was, what's her name, and where did she come from before they have another brutalized and mutilated woman on their hands. It was decided to keep the gruesome details of this killing close to the vest to prevent the desert community from becoming overwhelmed with panic and fear. At the autopsy, the woman's fingerprints were taken and entered into the statewide database, but a match was not made. The whole day following the evening Fatima failed to come home, her daughter Yolanda had been driving around looking for her mother. That's what she did for that entire Tuesday. She tried talking to neighbors, people they knew, knocking on random doors, but as she was doing this, making these efforts to find her mother on her own, Yolanda had that feeling in her gut that her efforts were going to be in vain. She did not have any hope at all that she was going to be able to track her mother down on her own, but she was just using that time, that 24 hours that she figured she needed to wait, in the only way that she could think of until the time came when she would finally be able to make that missing persons report. Yolanda searched for her mom with absolutely zero hope of finding her, but if for nothing else, she would be able to tell the police that at least she tried. That 24-hour mark would fall on Tuesday night, April 23rd at 10 p.m., so Yolanda waited until the following morning to make her way down to her local sheriff's station to finally report Fatima missing. They took her report, and by the following day, Thursday, the 25th, they found that a neighboring department, the Indio Police, had been investigating an unidentified body for the past two days. The detectives on that case got a call from the sheriffs that they had a missing persons report that had come up in their offices, and it appeared that the descriptions that Yolanda had provided of her mother had some similarities to the description of their unidentified murdered woman, the telltale sign being that gold tooth with the four-leaf clover on it. They knew right away that this was her. Their body was this missing person. The sheriffs faxed over a picture of Fatima Van, the woman reported missing, to the Indio detectives, and yeah, it was her. The following morning, Friday, April 26, 1991, detectives knocked on Yolanda's front door. There, with the news that her mom had been found in the desert and that she was indeed gone. Yolanda's whole world was devastated, and it would be her uncle, her mother's brother, that would have to go down to the county coroner's office and make that official identification. But the good news, the only good news was, now that they knew who this was, investigators could begin to try and figure out why this happened, and more importantly, who did this.
I took her home for about three weeks each night. I was planning on killing her, but I didn't have everything I needed. I had a taser, but I didn't want to strangle her to death, so I got a gun. Bought a gun at the school from a guy I met there. It was about a week then when I pulled the gun on her. I turned down Dinosaur Road to the dead end and turned around. I told her, Time to get raped, sweet thing. I cocked the gun and said, Honey, you do it my way, or I'll do it when you're dead. He took her clothes off. He asked, not in these exact words, I will not repeat the way this man described this. He asked her if she had ever given oral sex. She told him that she had not. He asked her if she ever engaged in anal sex, commenting on how good she looked. She told him that she had not. He told Fatima that this was her lucky night and called her sweet thing, that she was going to get sodomized and she was going to give oral sex for the first time. He said that he forced her head down and that while this was happening, he put his gun to her head without her knowledge. He described on tape how it felt, what he was ordering her to do to him, describing it all in graphic details. Just as he was about to finish, he yanked her head up by her hair and told her it was sodomy time. He described how he forced himself into her, how she screamed and how he told her to be quiet, and that he turned her over onto her back and that he raped her again, violating her, fondling her, describing it on this tape in all the worst ways that you can imagine, so when he played them back, he would be able to relive every single detail of what he did to Fatima and talking about how fine she looked when he was finished. I get her dressed. She sat there with tears in her eyes. I looked at her and I say, Sorry, sweet thing, I can't have no witnesses. I shot her one time and then she screamed. I shot her again right in the temple. Laid her against the window. The blood outlined that fine black breast through her white pullover and her bra. I reached up and got a handful of that sweet black breast. I squeezed it again and said, Well, Fanny, I got what I wanted. You, you sweet little grandmother. You ain't gonna see your grandchildren, honey. At 37, she was a grandmother. Yeah, sweet thing, you're mine. All mine. I took off, got on the freeway, took her out to Jefferson, pulled her out of the car, stripped her of her jewelry and took her clothes off. But this man was not finished with Fatima just yet. On his tape, he described touching her dead body, running his hands all over, up and down her legs as she lay dead, face down in the desert. He described turning her over onto her back, only to find that he had another erection. He described raping her again, but that it was too bad she didn't feel it that time, because she was dead. Then he said he next gouged her eyes out, cut off her ears and her nipples, and then he stabbed her in the stomach, then he stabbed her in the vagina. He turned her over again and stabbed her where he sodomized her, and then carved I Heart Jesus on her back. I left her there like garbage, what she was after I got done with her. Yeah, she's a sweet, good-looking black woman that I finally got. 
There was a sense of desperate urgency to find the person who did this to Fatima because investigators were certain that whoever did this wasn't finished. They wanted to know what led up to this. Where was Fatima in the days and hours prior to her having gone missing? When was the last time she was seen and who had she been seen with? They spoke to Yolanda who was able to tell them what a typical day was like for her mom, who her friends were, who she hung out with. Was she in a relationship with anyone? Was there anyone she was having trouble with? Yolanda allowed investigators to search Fatima's bedroom. They went through her personal effects, but there was just nothing. They had moved out there to the desert, to Indio, to start over, and that's pretty much what was going on with Fatima at that point in her life. Just a mom, a student, a CNA, living her life, taking care of her children. The more investigators got to know about Fatima, the more they learned, the more questions arose. This was not a woman who would be the target of anyone wanting to do anything violent to her or harm her in any way, at least not that anyone they could see. The fear that this crime would go unsolved continued to grow, and until they found him, everyone was at risk of becoming this man's next victim. He was nameless and he was faceless. He's nowhere to be found, yet he's everywhere. 420 miles, 675 kilometers away from the deserts of Riverside, California, is the city of Burlingame, located on the San Francisco Peninsula along the shores of the bay. The day is Friday, April 26, 1991, the Burlingame Police Department were contacted by a gentleman named Ralph Galindo. He told them that he had two friends, a mother and a daughter, Eva Peterson and Carol Spadoni. They usually got together on a daily basis pretty much, at a place nearby where they would meet for coffee. But the two of them had failed to show up one morning, and then it happened again the following morning. They'd been meeting for coffee for years by that time, so it was very unusual for them to suddenly not show up. So after Eva and Carol failed to meet up with Mr. Galindo for two days in a row, he decided to drive over to their house to check on them, and it was immediately apparent to him that something wasn't right. He could tell that their pets were acting strange, he could hear the dogs barking incessantly on the inside, it was just not like the house or the dogs to be like this. So he knew that there was something going on here and that something was not going to be good. So he contacted local law enforcement. An officer was sent to even Carol's house to perform a welfare check. The home was a nice two-bedroom house in a nice neighborhood. There were, however, a few newspapers and packages that had been delivered sitting on the front porch, which was concerning. They knocked on the door and received no answer. So the officer began walking around the perimeter of the house to check if there was any way to look inside or access the home from any windows or doors, but they all seemed to be secured. The officer made his way around to the other side of the house where the garage was located and found the access door to the outside from the garage to be opened. He knocked again but still received no answer. He pushed the door open and entered into the garage. He could hear barking and he could see right away from entering the garage that this was a very, very cluttered home. There was stuff piled up everywhere. But as he looked past the boxes and things, and there on the floor of the garage, he saw 
the body of an older woman, a woman in her 70s. She was naked with the exception of a towel that had been tightly wrapped around her head, with a portion of it shoved into her mouth. A bullet hole was observed having gone through the towel into this woman's head. As the officer went further into the house, he found two small dogs running around and barking. They were able to gather them up pretty quickly as to not further compromise what is now a crime scene. As they carefully walked through the house, they discovered the body of a second woman, younger than the first, dead on the floor of the living room. She was partially naked. She had been stabbed numerous times in the chest and shot one time in the head. The woman in the garage was subsequently identified as 72-year-old Eva Peterson, and the woman in the living room was her 46-year-old daughter, Carol Spadoni. Carol's head had been completely wrapped several times around with duct tape. Her nose and her mouth were both covered, which would have made it impossible for her to breathe, if she were still breathing when all of this was done to her. Officers are used to finding homicide victims it happens. Most of the time, someone has been stabbed or someone has been shot. But these women were all that and then some. They had been tortured and brutalized. And it was apparent that whoever did this to Carol and Eva must have really hated these women or was very, very angry. This welfare check was now a double murder. And it was not your run-of-the-mill murders. The man who did this was sadistic, pure evil, and again, unlike anything these officers had ever seen before or since. There was nothing investigators could find in Eva or Carol's background on the surface or anything about their lifestyle that would lead them to believe that there was anyone who would want to do something like this to these two ladies. In 1991, Burlingame was a small, quiet community. It has since become quite bustling and populated. Eva had raised Carol there, and all things about her upbringing were as normal as possible. However, it was about the time Carol had turned 15 that she had developed some body image issues and an eating disorder. Her weight had plummeted from about 130 pounds down to only 75 pounds, or 58 kilograms down to 34. She was anorexic and bulimic. And because of this, Eva dedicated her entire life to taking care of Carol, to a point where neither one of them were involved with anything or anyone else outside of each other. As the years passed, that's how things were. It was just the two of them, for the most part, isolated in that house with their dogs and their stuff. Carol depended on her mother, and as Eva grew older, she became more and more dependent on her daughter. In an interview Carol's cousin gave to a journalist who covered this story back in the early 90s, that cousin described Carol, who was about eight years older than her, but they were close. As the nicest person ever, both of them, Eva and Carol, were just sweet, kind women. Though their lives were unique in that they hardly associated with anyone outside of each other, they were quiet, unassuming, private, and isolated. As mentioned earlier, the whole house was just full, wall-to-wall, -wall, ceiling-to-floor, with piles of clutter, 
this was a hoarding situation going on. And now knowing that, it's not so unusual that Eva and Carol kept mostly to themselves. That's typically what goes on with people like this. There was a little bit of method to the madness from the pictures that I could see, but it was very hard moving around anywhere inside that home that was stacked with boxes and clothes and shoes, just bins and containers stacked in every direction. They both had this habit of shopping from home, either by catalog or by TV, like those home shopping channels. They bought stuff from Avon, from QVC, from the home shopping network. The both of them did this. But the way things were, it seemed like everything was as it had been prior to the two of them having met with foul play, which led investigators to believe that burglary was not the motive behind this. And knowing that most of the stuff anyway, particularly the jewelry that these ladies had was either from Avon or QVC, then most likely it was just a bunch of junk from like the Joan Rivers collection or something like that. The stuff is basically worthless. Regardless of how these ladies lived though, they were unassuming, quiet, private. They were no bother to anybody. So it would seem to make them inherently some of the least likely to have been targeted for such a gruesome crime. So investigators had to ask themselves, who would do something like this? This again isn't something that they see every day, a crime with this level of violence to these two harmless, innocuous ladies. The first person they wanted to look into was the person who initially made contact with law enforcement, Ralph Galindo. He lived nearby. He was a retired member of the San Francisco Police Department and had been friends with both Eva and Carol for a number of years. What raised investigators' suspicions was the fact that when he told police that he was worried about his friends, that he had been over there because he instinctively thought something was wrong, he told them that when they go into their home, they're going to find bodies inside. While on the surface this seems kind of weird and suspicious, when you step back and think about it, Mr. Galindo knew these ladies. He knew their routine. They regularly met for coffee. He was concerned the first day that they failed to show up, but was pretty much convinced that something was wrong by the second day. He went to their house and heard the dogs incessantly barking, which probably wouldn't be happening because typically dog owners would be shushing them, right? And Mr. Galindo was a retired firefighter, so he might just have some instincts about him that perhaps the average person doesn't have when happening upon a scene like this. However, I do understand why they found what he said to be such an odd thing. Detectives interviewed Mr. Galindo. He told them that he had tried calling them that day, but they did not answer, which was also very unusual because they were always home and they always answered. He was asked why his first thoughts were that there were going to be bodies inside. And he told investigators because when he decided to go over there and saw both of their vehicles parked out front and their pets hadn't been fed or taken care of, he just automatically thought that the only way things would be in this state was if they were dead. He insisted that he did not go inside. So at first, it seemed like Mr. Galindo had knowledge that he should not have had. At this point in the story, I'm not going to spoil it for you just yet, but Mr. Galindo 
would be ruled out as a suspect. Back in Burlington about noon at Carol's house, I walked in, no problem. We talked for a while. I got up, hugged Carol, and then I grabbed her around the waist and around the throat. Told Eva to strip. She said, don't hurt us with that gun. What are you trying to do? I said, if you don't strip, I'm going to shoot you between your beautiful breasts. She didn't do it, and I shot her right above the tit. I turned the gun and shot Carol through the brain, through her head. Let her drop to the floor. She curled up. I shot her mother again in the head. She dropped to the floor. Both were making noises like they're breathing their last, but I make sure these girls are dead. So I tied duct tape around Carol's mouth and nose. She's still making that noise, so I stabbed her through the throat. In his recordings, this man went on to describe how he sliced open one of Carol's silicone breasts and how he stabbed her in the genital areas. He then said he took off Eva's clothing and fondled her breasts. He turned her over and sodomized her. He talked about how he turned her back over and continued to fondle her while he raped her. Then he said he tried gouging her eyes out, but they wouldn't come out, so he slit her throat instead. He stabbed her in the stomach and in the genital areas for a second time. I took Carol into part of the house. Come back and drag Eva down the stairs. I ate some food. They made me dinner. I ate my... I ate their food. Took a shower, shaved. I went back, took a towel and tried to muffle the shot. I shot Eva through the mouth before I left. I said to her, Well, sweet thing, believe me now, I was going to rape you. The old girl cost her her daughter's life. Yeah, I got them both, them bitches. Yeah, I got them good. It was so good to watch them all fall dead. The thing that got investigators to eliminate Ralph Galindo as a suspect in having anything to do with Eva and Carol's murders was the discovery of a collection of letters inside the women's home. There were nearly six dozen of them dating back to the early 80s. The reason why these letters stood out amongst all the other clutter was the fact that they had come from a California correctional facility. Either Carol or Eva or the both of them had been corresponding with a prisoner and it had been going on for years by the time that they were killed. The investigation suddenly pivoted into that direction. Who was this inmate that they were writing to? What was he locked up for? Was he still there? Has he been paroled? And how was it that he came to be connected to these murder victims in the first place? Was this perhaps an act of revenge for him being in prison? Were they silenced for some reason? Investigators were eager to figure out if this inmate had something to do with this. He was writing to these two ladies across a number of years and suddenly they're dead. These letters had come from an inmate being housed at San Quentin State Prison and his name was Philip Carl Jablonski. When they started to take a closer look at this man, the red flags started flying up all over the place. This was the perfect suspect, if ever there was one, and the detectives investigating Eva and Carol's murders immediately focused in on this Jablonski character. 
He not only rose to the top of the suspect list, he pretty much knocked everybody else off, including Mr. Galindo. And they weren't the only law enforcement agency in California searching for Jablonski. I'm hoping this woman ahead of me is my next victim. Back down to Southern California, a couple of days after Indio detectives positively identified the body found murdered and mutilated in the desert as Fatima Van, they received a call from their counterparts in the city of Palm Springs. One of them had heard about Fatima's case, and based on the details, found there to be some similarities to a case they had out of their city some 13 years earlier. It was somewhat of a long shot, but there were too many unusual details in terms of what was done to the victims, the manner in which they were killed, for it to just be a coincidence. It was possible, but to the detectives, it was worth a look. The man involved in the Palm Springs case from 1978 was none other than Philip Carl Jablonski. Born January 3, 1946 in Joshua Tree, California, Philip Jablonski had a rough start to life. His father was an alcoholic who regularly and brutally physically and sexually abused his wife and his children. Jablonski met the young lady who would become his first wife while in high school, Alex McGowan. He graduated in 1964 and enlisted in the army two years later in 1966. He was sent to Vietnam for two years. When he returned to the United States in 1968, he and Alice got married and the couple resided in Texas. A very short time later, Jablonski began exhibiting increasingly violent sexual behaviors towards his wife. He would do things like put a pillow over Alice's head while they were having sex in an effort to try and suffocate her. There were numerous incidents where Jablonski would also choke Alice during sex until she passed out. Alice would leave Jablonski before 1968, the year that they got married, was over. In November of 68, Jablonski met a woman named Jane Sanders. On their first date, he became violent and ended up raping her, but Jane decided to not report the incident to law enforcement. While the details of how her relationship with Jablonski evolved from there are few, she did move forward in having a relationship with him. And yes, I very much believe her and that she was raped on their first date. And I understand that despite having that initial violent encounter with him and him forcing himself on her, that she would continue seeing him. It happens. And while I don't know all the reasonings behind it, my guess would be that she was likely afraid or ashamed. She could have blamed herself. He could have been blaming her or convinced her otherwise, but she did carry on with him and we just don't know, and we don't have the right to judge. She also became pregnant by Jablonski, though I don't know if that was a result of the initial rape, but nonetheless, she was pregnant with his child, and that absolutely could have factored into why she stayed. After Jablonski was discharged from the army, he and Jane moved to California in July of 1969. The sexual violence continued and included at least one occasion where they were having sex, but she told him that she wanted him to stop. He then grabbed a gun and threatened to kill her if she refused to continue. Jablonski ended up pistol whipping her and knocking her out cold. When she came to, she was being raped. 
After more than three years of this, Jane finally left Jablonski sometime in 1972. Over the next few years, Jablonski had a number of failed relationships, all of them coming to an end because of his propensity for sexual violence. Later that same year, in 1972, Jablonski attacked and raped a woman who was an acquaintance of his. In what capacity she knew him, I don't know. I'm just assuming that any woman around this man, acquaintance or not, is absolutely in danger of being sexually assaulted. And an indicator that this is a man who has no restraint, he raped this woman while holding her at knife point with her infant child in the same room. She managed to get away from him. She grabbed her baby and ran to a neighbor for help. The police were called and Jablonski was taken into custody and subsequently convicted of rape. This would give us a time gap from 1972 to either late 76 or 77, a period of a little more than four years when the women of California were at least for this period of time safe from this man. But I mean, this was a prolific time for serial killers, right? Not just in California, but across the country. We can identify them. We know ex exactly who we're talking about just by their last names alone. These killers who made the 70s just terrifying. Kemper, Kraft, Toole, Lucas, Bittaker, Norris, Alcala, Berkowitz, Bianchi, Bonin, Melanson, Bundy, D'Angelo, Gacy, Raider. And those are just the ones who have been identified and the ones who are the most well known. But for at least a few years, Jablonski was off the streets. But he would be back. And worse than ever. In 1977, Jablonski, fresh out of prison, was on the hunt again for a new relationship. Let's be real, a new victim to brutalize, but on a official basis, I guess. He met a woman named Linda Kimball at some sort of dance back when that used to be a thing. They began dating and in most reports, Linda is referred to as Jablonski's wife, Though I'm not exactly sure when or if they got married, she would be later on referred to as his common-law wife, if that was a thing. However, it did seem kind of a short period of time for them to know one another for this to turn into a common-law thing. Anyway, by late 1977, they were living in Palm Springs, and Linda had given birth to their daughter that December. They named her Megan. However, it was becoming increasingly apparent to Linda that there was something very, very wrong with Jablonski and that she was saddled with a really big problem. They had or were trying to have some semblance of a normal relationship with their new little family. At this time, Jablonski was 32 years old. Linda was 29. They socialized and they often had family and friends over. Linda's mom, Isabel Pauls, lived just a few houses down from them. And Jablonski he had this habit of treating Linda really badly in front of everybody. He would belittle her, demean her. It was humiliating. Then on the evening of July 6, 1978, Jablonski went over to his mother-in-law's house, Isabel. He let himself in. He found her asleep in the bedroom. He got on top of her, holding a knife. She woke up and he told her that he was there to rape her. But he ended up backing out of this plan, telling Isabel what he had come to do, but he was unable to do it because when he looked at her, she reminded him of his wife. Isabel managed to get out of the house. 
She ran over to a neighbor's but ended up not calling the police to report the break-in and attempted sexual assault. A day or so after this, Linda packed up her stuff and their baby and left, moving in with her mother. At first, both Linda and Isabel had a desire to try and get Jablonski some kind of professional help, which is one reason why they didn't call police. However, I don't know if they were aware of Jablonski's history or that he had spent a few years in jail for rape. They ended up taking him to the Veterans Affairs Hospital, but after some initial examinations, he was found to not be suicidal or homicidal and that he could benefit from medicinal treatments. He was seen by a second doctor and that one did the same thing, ordering that he continue to be kept on medications, agreeing with the initial diagnosis that Jablonski was not a threat to himself or to others. This doctor did suggest that Isabel go to law enforcement to report that attempted sexual assault and for her and her daughter to keep their distance from him. It isn't clear if they took the doctor's advice to make that police report, but I do know that after they left the VA hospital the second time, they ended up taking Jablonski to his parents' house instead of the home that they had shared, which was just a few houses away from theirs, in an attempt to put some distance between themselves and Jablonski. While Linda wasn't really going over to the home anyway, she had wanted to because she had left most of her stuff and the baby's stuff behind. Jablonski didn't stay at his parents' house for very long. At some point, he was back at their house, effectively closing up that distance that Linda had tried to put between them. Ten days after Jablonski had entered into Isabel's home uninvited with the intentions of raping her, on the morning of July 16, 1978, he called Linda, and as they talked, he told her that he was planning on going fishing with his dad all day, that his dad was coming to pick him up soon. So when Linda believed that the coast was clear, she took the opportunity to return to the home that they had once shared to pick up some of hers and the baby's things. Jablonski must have known that Linda would take this chance to come to the house, whether he assumed or whether he knew that she wanted some of her belongings. Either way, it was a trap. Unfortunately, she walked right into it. He was at the house waiting for Linda, unbeknownst to her. Sometime later that morning, Jablonski's father, that child and wife abusing tree from which the apple fell not very far from at all, arrived at the house. These two garbage people did indeed have a plan to go fishing that day. Ah, father-son rapist, day of rest and relaxation from their own repulsiveness. As it turned out, Jablonski won up his dad on that day. The elder Jablonski walked in to find Linda dead in the bedroom. His son was nowhere to be found. Linda had been severely beaten and stabbed. She was strangled with a belt that did not belong to her. That belt was pulled so tightly around her neck that the only way the medical examiner was able to remove it was to cut it off. It did appear that Linda had been sexually assaulted. Her shirt was pulled up and her bra had been ripped to pieces and torn. Her underwear and pants were pulled down. Jablonski would be arrested 11 days later, but not before he assaulted and raped another woman named Eileen Millsap in the city of Highland, California, which was about an hour northwest of where he had lived with Linda. Jablonski met Eileen through an ad that she had placed in a local newspaper for a stove that she was selling. 
With her children in the house, Jablonski pushed her into her bedroom, told her to take her clothes off, and as her children looked on, he got on top of her and choked her until she passed out. When she came to, Jablonski was gone. He had taken her purse and later used her credit cards to buy gas. Jablonski was arrested on July 27, 1978 after an 11-day manhunt. He had apparently even had enough of himself. He contacted his parents and would ultimately turn himself in voluntarily in Arizona. A note was found inside his car, a note to self, I guess, that said, Killed to date, Linda Kimball, common law wife. I told her she would never raise Megan alone or leave me alive. She begged me not to kill her. You screamed, but it was cut short. Jablonski confessed to the killing, that he did it because he refused to allow Linda to leave him, that she belonged to him and that because of that, he could do whatever he wanted to her. So he killed her to prevent her from not only walking out on him, but from being with anyone else. On March 2, 1979, Jablonski was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to a pitiful seven years in prison. Even though it was a clearly planned out crime and that he had laid in wait and that this was a totally first degree level killing, the prosecutors on the case did not think that they had enough evidence to prove it, instead choosing to present this as a quote unquote heat of the moment type of killing. So for Linda's life, and all of her suffering and the suffering of her infant who would have to live out her entire life without her mother, all of that would amount to seven years. Never mind this man's violent history and previous rape conviction. Just seven years is all her life was worth. So Jablonski's now in prison for murdering Linda and he's fixing to be paroled come May of 1984, which is pretty terrifying. But while he was serving this time, he was convicted of yet another crime. During a family prison visit with his parents, he got upset and tried to kill his mother by attempting to strangle her with a shoelace. When detectives assigned to Fathom Avan's case down in Indio were made aware of the existence of this man named Philip Jablonski and how he was pretty much a serial rapist and was known to have murdered at least one woman, his wife and the mother of his child, they immediately felt like there was a good possibility that Jablonski could be involved with Fathom's murder too. They needed to look into Jablonski a little bit more to find out what this guy had been up to, and more importantly, where he had been recently. Jablonski had finished both of his sentences by the summer of 1990. In August of that year, this man was free once again to do whatever it was his violent urges drove him to do next. And Riverside County, California had the unfortunate luck of being the place where Jablonski was paroled to right into the place where Fatima and her then 16-year-old daughter Yolanda resided, the desert community of Indio. When detectives learned that not only did this man have a violent criminal history, but that he was living right there amongst them, they were all but convinced that this was their guy. At just about the same time, Indio investigators were coming to terms with the kind of individual that they were dealing with in Fatima's case, 
Investigators hundreds of miles away in the Bay Area community of Burlingame were learning that mother and daughter murder victims Eva Peterson and Carol Spadoni, either one or both of them, had been corresponding with that very same person who had just come on to the radar of investigators in Indio, Philip Jablonski. Carol's cousin, who I mentioned earlier in speaking to a journalist, said that Carol had mentioned at a dinner get-together that she was writing to a pen pal in prison that he had been convicted of murdering his wife and carol basically said that she was in a relationship with this man the whole family were pretty stunned at this revelation none of them felt like that there was anything good about what carol was telling them in fact they were pretty appalled just shocked that carol would not just be writing to a prisoner but writing to one who had murdered his wife. It was later revealed that Carol had actually married Jablonski while he was in prison, effectively becoming his third wife. And she had been married to him for quite some time. In a documentary I watched about this case, they showed some flashes of their actual marriage certificate. I was able to pause it and see that, yeah, they actually did that. On June 9th, 1982, Jablonski's address is listed only as San Quentin in Marin County. He was 36 years old at the time. Carol was 37. I mean, it's not unheard of, you know, women marrying these murderers. And more often than not, they're never going to get out of prison. But this guy, he had a release date. And it wasn't all that far off from the time that they tied the knot. So, I don't know. People change, people turn over new leaves, but I'm not sure Jablonski is the guy that you want to test out those theories on. So, here he goes getting out on parole in August of 1990. However, when Jablonski was paroled, one of the stipulations was that he was not to be allowed to live anywhere near the city of Burlingame. And part of that has to do with that family visit where Jablonski tried to kill his mom. His parents weren't the only ones who were visiting him that day. Carol and Eva had gone as well. Let me just back up a little bit here and tell you how this all started in the first place. So there was this outreach program at Carol and Eva's church that was suggesting to their parishioners to try and write to prison inmates in order to encourage them to become born-again Christians. This was something that Carol thought would be perfect for her. It was a way for her to spread the good word of God without having to leave the comfort of her home. She wouldn't have to have any physical contact with him. There would be this distance and these boundaries. They would never really be together. She would be able to stay close and connected with whomever she was writing to, but still be safe. In his letters to Carol, Jablonski was very charming and sweet even though he was terrible at writing, grammar, and spelling. He's one of those lonely hearts types of conmen, just in the worst way. He was always so upbeat and spirited in his letters. It was very easy for him to win vulnerable women like Carol over. He endeared himself to her. So if you've gone Googling around and looked at this guy's mugshots and wondered what the hell, that's the reason. He apparently had charm and charisma in spades. Carol started writing to Jablonski in 1980 and wrote to him steadily pretty much on a daily basis. In 1982, Jablonski asked Carol to marry him and she said yes, 
even though she knew he was in prison for killing his wife just four years earlier in 1978. Carol had it in her mind that she would be able to save Jablonski, that she would be able to help him turn his life around, to find God, to become a better man. And throughout the first few years that she had been writing to him, Carol came to believe that she did have this positive impact on his life, and it was because of her that he was a better person. The truth was Jablonski was simply that manipulative in his letters, in the things that he would say to Carol, telling her the things that she wanted to hear. He preyed on the fact that Carol was somewhat naive and sensed early on just how vulnerable she was. She had lived such a sheltered life for so many years. She did not have very much experience when it came to relationships or with people in general. Carol started becoming concerned, however, because Jablonski's letters were starting to become sexually explicit and it was getting worse over time. It was something that Carol found to be quite alarming, especially because Jablonski wasn't just talking about what he wanted to do to her, but also what he wanted to do to her mother, his mother-in-law, Eva. But they really weren't all that worried over the content of Jablonski's letters because he was in prison and there wasn't really anything that he can do as long as he stayed put. But as the years passed, it was becoming apparent that Jablonski was going to be a free man and that would be a problem. He was set to be paroled and by 1985, he was about to get out. By then, Carol had been married to Jablonski for about three years. During that time, she had made a conscious effort to keep her distance from him, and while she did go visit him in prison, she did not take part in conjugal visits. Jablonski had made arrangements for 13 conjugal visits over those years, and all 13 times, Carol managed to dodge that bullet, even though he was putting a lot of pressure on her to make those visits with him. When she did go see him in prison, she always brought her mom with her. Another thing she did was she cut her hair short whenever she would go see him because during previous visits, Jablonski would put his hand around her neck and he would tell her how beautiful her long hair was and that he fantasized about strangling her with her own hair. So it got to be 1985 and Jablonski is on deck to get paroled and released from San Quentin any day now. He made another arrangement for Carol to come and have a conjugal visit with him, but on that particular trip to San Quentin, she not only brought her mother with her, she brought his mom and dad with her too. Even though all three of their parents were there on this family visit day, he still wanted Carol to do the conjugal visit with him, but she again refused. This time, though, it infuriated Jablonski. He lost his temper to a point that he began attacking his own mother, attempting to strangle her to death with a shoelace. Jablonski's father managed to intervene and pulled him off of her. This incident caused Jablonski to have an additional five years tacked on to his sentence. He wasn't going to be paroled in 1985 as planned, and Carol and Ava could rest easy for now. With those additional five years in place, that would take Jablonski's time in prison to a total of 12 years, 12 years since he murdered his second wife, Linda. 
So, we're going to now fast forward to 1990. Jablonski was not able to make any more conjugal visit requests. And while I don't quite know for sure the extent to which Carol was keeping in touch with Jablonski, from what I could see, it seemed like after the incident at that visit when he attacked his mom, the letters kind of slowed down, but she didn't fully stop writing to him. However, she did not visit him again. When the letters from Jablonski were discovered in Eva and Carol's home, there were only about 60 or 70 of them. So that actually isn't all that many across the 10 years or so that they had been writing. The writing may have slowed, if not stopped at all, after that attack on his mother. I just, I'm not quite sure. What I do know for sure is that when Jablonski was paroled in August of 1990, he was banned from being in or residing in San Mateo County, which is where Eva and Carol lived in the city of Burlingame. Carol had made it abundantly clear that if and when Jablonski was to be paroled, that she feared for her safety and the safety of her mother, which she very well should have. So the answer to that was to ban him from the county. But you know, that guy had to go somewhere. And like I said earlier, Riverside County had the unfortunate luck of having to welcome Jablonski as their newest resident, the city of Indio to be exact, right near Fatima Van. And it is really unfortunate because these garbage people have to live somewhere. Today, the laws have since been tightened. A man like Jablonski would surely spend the rest of his life in prison he would have had way more time for that rape conviction that he had had. And it doesn't even sound like he was charged or convicted of raping the woman who he had met through that ad in the newspaper for the stove. Clearly, this guy is a problem and a menace and has no business living free in anybody's community. It's guys like him that brought up about the calls for changes in the laws to give longer sentences. Jablonski is exactly the reason. And if you are a Patreon member, then you recall that we discussed the case of Mary Vincent. She was the 15-year-old who was hitchhiking to get from her grandparents' home in Berkeley, California to her parents' house in Las Vegas. She was picked up by a guy known as the Mad Chopper, Lawrence Singleton. He bludgeoned her with a sledgehammer, rendering her unconscious. He raped Mary for hours and then cut off her arms at the elbow with a hatchet. Then, thinking that she was dead, threw her off a 30-foot cliff off the 5 freeway. But Mary wasn't dead. She stopped the bleeding by shoving what was left of her severed arms into the dirt. She somehow got herself back up that cliff. She walked three miles completely naked and covered in blood with no arms, until a passerby finally stopped and took her to the hospital. Singleton served only eight years of a 14-year sentence for what he did to Mary. It was all California law would allow for him at the time. He was released early because of good behavior of all things and working as a teacher's assistant at the prison. When he was paroled to Contra Costa County, the townspeople, and I pictured them with torches and pitchforks, protested mightily. Nobody wanted Singleton in their neighborhood, so he was forced to live in a trailer on the San Quentin prison grounds for the duration of his parole, which lasted one year. He later went on to murder again in Florida. 
Mary Vincent herself went there wearing prosthetics and shared her story at this man's sentencing hearing to tell those deciding his fate what he had done to her and the impact that it had on her life. I don't think that there was any doubt that this man needed to be on death row, but cancer got to him before the state of Florida could. Because of this man, California passed a law that made torture a crime that carries a sentence of 25 years to life in prison. Unfortunately, Jablonski predated the strengthening of these laws. So, in this one week of April of 1991, Philip Jablonski had become the suspect in three murders. Investigators on Fatima's case in Indio were led to him because of the similarities her murder had to that of his wife Linda back in 1978 in nearby Palm Springs. After murdering Fatima, Jablonski hit the road and headed straight for Burlingame, where Eva and Carol lived. They were discovered dead inside their home following that welfare check just four days after Fatima was murdered. The investigation confirmed Jablonski was in the area of Burlingame around the time that Eva and Carol were found murdered because he had been pulled over and issued a moving violation citation. Jablonski had not yet been named as a suspect in the murders and that officer didn't know it or it didn't come up in the system that he wasn't supposed to be anywhere near that county, so there was nothing that set off any alarm bells during that traffic stop. That officer had no idea he was giving a ticket to a serial killer. And Jablonski wasn't finished. After killing Eva and Carol, he was back on the road, this time headed to Wyoming, Uinta County specifically. It pretty much makes up the southwestern corner of the state of Wyoming and it is neatly tucked into that upper right hand corner that is cut out of the state of Utah. This is where Jablonski found himself two days after Eva and Carol were murdered. In real time, Jablonski was making audio recordings, parked at a truck stop in Wyoming. He was sitting there, looking, watching, stalking, hunting. He's recording himself as he sees a woman, commenting about her body, the size of her features, that she has a kid with her, that he wants to rape her if he can while she's still alive. As soon as these people leave, this trucker, this car ahead of him, she's his if she doesn't leave before. He keeps talking to himself, talking about how gorgeous and big this woman is and all the things that he wants to do to her. I'm hoping this woman ahead of me is my next victim. Not this time, Satan. You're going to have to wait. Well, I'm losing her. She's getting ready to leave. Man, I would give anything to fuck that, then kill it. Then kill the little boy. God, what I wouldn't give for this woman. Come on, you guys. Leave the fucking restroom so I can have her. Shit, yes. Come on, guys. Get out of the fucking restroom. If I get a chance, I'm kidnapping this woman. Wanna put her in the car with the kid? Put her in the back seat? Make her lay down and shoot her? I don't care what I have to do to get this baby. She's mine. Like I said, not this time. Lost her. But there's two more that just went to the bathroom. If these two guys would leave, 
I'd have these two. I'd just walk in and shoot them and do what I wanted with them. Not gonna get these either. Well, I gotta move alone and hope I get one soon. You know, by this time, Jablonski has to know that he's wanted by police. So he's on the road and on the run. And his violent sexual urges are having him desperate to find another woman to brutalize, rape, and murder. Wherever Jablonski is, no woman was safe, especially with having nobody specific in his life to target since he's murdered them all. He's murdered his second wife, Linda. He murdered Fatima, a woman he befriended at Desert College. I haven't mentioned it yet, but Jablonski was a student at that college. Yeah, but not because he wanted to better himself or further his education or learn a trade. No. He was attending the college because it was another stipulation of his parole. He had to enroll in school. Yeah, the court ordered this dangerous predator onto a campus full of women. He became friends with Fatima in the auto shop class that they took together, a class that probably didn't have very many women to begin with. While we understand the intention behind it, this plan of him going to school and making something out of his life, it backfired. Fatima was put right square front and center into Jablonski's sights. This man murdered his third wife. He murdered his mother-in-law. He tried to murder his mom, but his dad ended up stopping him. Pretty pathetic when an old man is able to whoop your ass. Jablonski wiped out every woman that he had come in close contact with for at least the last 13 years of his life, and to think 12 of those years he was behind bars. Now his only option is to hunt strangers in public. Eventually, Jablonski spotted another woman. She was traveling by herself with the exception of her dog, and she stopped so they could go to the restroom. She took the dog first, put it back in her vehicle, and then took herself. All the while, unbeknownst to her, a serial killer was watching her every move. As she came out of the restroom, she saw Jablonski's gray car. She noticed that there was a man sitting in the driver's seat. As she was observing him, she noticed that he slid across the bench seat over to the passenger side. He opened the door, which is the side of the car she was closest to. She saw him get out of the car, and when he stood up, she noticed that he had something bulging in his pants. And yes, this time it was a gun in his pocket. Based on what we know about men like Jablonski, it's almost a guarantee that he's got a micropenis. She then saw the man reach for his pocket, and sure enough, he pulled out a gun. He pointed it towards her. But of all the things this piece of human waste is, he's also a dumbass with butterfingers because this idiot dropped his gun. But you know, this woman already had the feeling there was something not right about him before this klutzy blunder douche pulled out his gun and dropped it. I mean, there are so few things about this case that I can find pleasure in. I mean, pretty much absolutely nothing at all. So we have to repeatedly point out what an incompetent noodle dick clod this asshole is. This woman knew it, down to her core, that this guy was bad news. She hurried back to her vehicle and drove off. 
She quickly found law enforcement and reported this encounter that she had with Jablonski and provided a description of him and his car. They were able to locate him in pretty short order and pulled him over. Jablonski likely thought that the jig was up at that point, but it wasn't. Not quite yet. The thing was, this was all happening one day before Ava and Carol's bodies were discovered inside their home. It was a day before the link was made between them and those letters from Jablonski, just before Fatima's murder was linked to him too. So when this woman encountered Jablonski at that truck stop and he was subsequently stopped by police, there had not yet been issued any warrants to be on the lookout for him. There was no nationwide large-scale manhunt. It was just a day away from getting to that point. Nobody was looking for Philip Jablonski. So when these officers questioned him about the incident at that truck stop, he said that when he got out of his car, he was going to use the bathroom and that the gun had accidentally fallen out of his pocket and he hadn't even realized it had happened at the moment. It was all an innocent misunderstanding. Wyoming is a state where most people have guns. It seemed to make sense. The officers chose to take Jablonski's story at face value and let him off with a warning, having no clue that they just set loose a serial killer who wasn't finished adding to his victim total. On the afternoon of Friday, April 26, 1991, four days after Fatima was kidnapped and murdered, Later on, the very same day that Carol and Eva were discovered murdered. Authorities down in Indio, California, were alerted to a broadcast out of the city of Burlingame, some six-ish hours away in Northern California. The alert was that they were searching for a suspect in a double homicide from their jurisdiction. They had his name and his description. They also would know what kind of car he was driving and all that information was because of the citation he had received when he was in Burlingame during the time that he murdered Carol and Eva. They knew that he had been paroled into Indio, so that alert went directly to them, directly to those working on Fatima's case. And they finally had a name, Philip Jablonski. The lead detective investigating Fatima's murder immediately contacted his counterparts in Burlingame. When they started to put the pieces of this together, that they've got three dead women on their hands in two different areas of California. They have the name of a man who was connected to both of these areas and these victims, victims who were murdered and mutilated in a very savage and callous manner. They knew that he was on the move, that he was on the loose. The fear and the urgency to find this man had now escalated dramatically. This is a person who is clearly on a killing spree, and they had no idea where he could be. Investigators in Burlingame and in Indio both obtained search warrants for the place where Jablonski was living in Indio. The first person they spoke to was the landlord of that property. That person was interviewed by a local journalist. This landlord described Jablonski as an overweight slob. That's a direct quote. He was an overweight slob, just a big slob. He was pleasant, not really amusing. I'd just like to know why they let him out. If people kill people, they shouldn't get out. The landlord let the police in. This was a place where Jablonski was renting a room. It was searched and evidence was uncovered. They discovered a white t-shirt covered in blood 
a lot of blood. Of course, it was immediately thought that considering the amount of blood that this shirt had been soaked with, this had to have been part of a crime scene. And the only bloody crime scene at that time in that jurisdiction was Fatima's. Is this what Jablonski was wearing when he did what he did to her? They also discovered at least one letter from Carol, which was dated April 22, 1991, the very day that Fatima failed to come home from class, the day that she was so brutally murdered. I looked around on the internet to see if I could find the letter in its entirety or a transcript of it. There is a book about this case, but I didn't get it, nor did I read it, so I was relying on Google for a lot of this episode. And while I was able to see some screenshots of her letter, I did find a letter that he wrote from jail on sale for $125, and I'll post a link to that in the show notes too. If you want to look at this man's terrible grammar, it's almost as terrible as he is. Anyway, the letter from Carol read in part, Dear Philip, I got your letter, your complaining letter yesterday. Don't worry. I do have an understanding of what you're going through. I know it's not easy for you and you are very lonely. I'm just happy you are doing as well as you're doing now. Also, you are not giving up on your studies. You said you keep pushing yourself. I'm proud of you for that. I'm always willing to lend my ear. Go ahead and complain if you want. You need someone to put your troubles on. I have complaining to do myself this time. You won't believe what's going on here. My mom is making out her will. That is a subject that I do not like to think about. So I wasn't able to see much beyond that line in the screenshot that I have, but it was signed, Love Carol. To me, it sounds like she's trying to keep Jablonski placated. I think she felt safe that he was far away in Southern California and that he's banned from coming near her. Little did she know that the night that she wrote that, her dear Philip was raping and murdering Fatima, and that he was just a day or so away from doing the same thing to her and her mother. After the search of Jablonski's room, it was finally clear what had happened, and it was clear what was potentially going to happen. They needed to find this guy, and they needed to find him fast. The next person investigators spoke to was Jablonski's parole officer. It was then they discovered that per the requirements of his release, Jablonski was to enroll in college classes. They found out that he was taking the very same auto shop class Fatima was taking. Her car was a class project, and because of that, she and her daughter Yolanda needed to get rides home from fellow classmates. Jablonski had been taking the two of them home for about three weeks leading up to her murder. On that night, if you recall from the beginning of the story, Yolanda stayed home from class because she wasn't feeling very well. Fatima had gone by herself. It was the first time Jablonski had the opportunity to be alone with her. And he did what he did. He murdered her, taking Yolanda and her sister's mother away from them forever in the worst way imaginable. The investigation revealed that Jablonski had been planning to kidnap and murder Fatima for quite some time. They were already a few months into the spring semester of 1991. He had just been released eight months earlier from being down 12 years in San Quentin. 
those sexually violent and homicidal urges had been building up for a long time, and I'm somewhat surprised that it took him eight months to carry out his next murder. When Indio investigators spoke to some of the other classmates in that auto shop, they said that Jablonski was always helping Fatima, working closely with her. Often they were on their own away from the others in the class. The classmates described Fatima as a really nice person. She was good at what she did. She picked up working on cars quickly. She was organized and neat. She had a very friendly, outgoing personality. They admired her desire to take these classes. She was a woman who didn't want to have to rely on any man for anything. She wanted to learn these skills herself. She was independent, self-sufficient, and she brought a really fun, bubbly vibe to the class. They were really sad to learn of her death. She had brought a spark to the classroom, and they all agreed that woman loved that little 280ZX. I saw a picture of the owner's manual for her car, and it was a Datsun. It was among the things found at her crime scene, and it was covered in blood. I'll show you the picture when this episode goes live. A classmate also told police that Fatima really didn't seem to have any problems with Jablonski, that is until he asked her out and she turned him down. Investigators also found out that one of their fellow classmates sold a gun, and it was Jablonski who had bought it from him. The Indio detectives were able to talk to this classmate, and it was during some conversations that he was having with Jablonski that he brought up having a small 22 caliber revolver. Jablonski asked the guy if he was interested in selling it, but this guy said that he wasn't really looking to get rid of it. But from the time Jablonski learned that this guy had this gun, and over the course of the next several class meetings, Jablonski kept asking him if he would sell it, kind of putting a lot of pressure on him about it. Eventually, this classmate found himself in kind of a pinch and decided that he could use the money and ended up selling the gun to Jablonski for $60. Of course, this classmate did not know Jablonski was on parole for murder or that he was on the cusp of embarking upon solidifying himself as California's next serial killer. It is really horrifying to think about how all these things fell into place for Jablonski and the lives that it ended up costing just one perfect storm after another. During class the night Fatima never came home, Jablonski told that classmate who sold him the gun that he wasn't going to be in class at the next meeting, that he was going shooting with his new gun. We know now that he did go shooting. It's just he used it to shoot Fatima, among other things. And even though she was dead, Jablonski continued to defile and mutilate Fatima, and he did indeed not show up for class the next day. Jablonski's classmates never saw him again. Witnesses saw Fatima get into Jablonski's car and leave campus together just before 10 p.m. that evening that she went missing. When they spoke to Yolanda about this, she said, yeah, we got rides from this older white guy. All she knew was that his name was Phil. They showed her a mugshot, and yep, that was him, Philip Jablonski. Indio police now had a positive identification of the man they believed murdered Fatima. But now, up in Burlingame, they needed to make that same positive identification. They had the letters 
They have an idea that this might be their guy, but they didn't know very much beyond that. They didn't even know what Jablonski looked like, which, by the way, is simply an old, fugly, droopy, yucky, nasty, balding, gross old man. But remember, they do have that traffic citation that he got in Burlingame around the time that Eva and Carol were murdered. So they tracked down that officer who gave him a ticket. They showed him a photo lineup of pictures to see if Jablonski was the guy that he stopped, and he immediately picked him out of the six pictures shown to him. Eva and Carol, while their bodies were found on April 26th, it was determined that they were murdered on the 23rd. That would be on Tuesday, the very next day following Fatima's murder. So Jablonski was moving quickly. He had killed Fatima on the night of Monday the 22nd. He made that drive to Burlingame and murdered Carol and Eva less than 12 hours later, before noon the next day. He received that traffic citation at 2.30 that same afternoon, just a few hours later. So now all these law enforcement agencies know that they were looking for the same guy. It was just a matter of tracking him down. Time was urgent. They were certain that this man was looking to kill again and they needed to stop him before he had the chance to. And because this was 1991, getting the word out about this man isn't as fast as it would be today. They're sending out teletypes about this guy. Philip Jablonski, 45-year-old, revolting, white man, 6 foot 4, 275 pounds, or 1.93 meters, 125 kilograms of 100% garbage or rubbish, whichever way you see it. While the news of the murders were mostly contained to their jurisdictions, both police departments sent that information about their murders and that they were looking for Jablonski and his vehicle to every single law enforcement agency across the United States. While authorities were desperately trying to get the word out about him so that they can get to this killer before he killed again, Jablonski found himself in Grand County, Utah. A few days later, I was leaving Utah at about 6 in the morning. A sign saying gas and diesel at the truck stop ahead, so I pulled off and went in. There was an older elderly woman at the counter. I come to the door, bought me a soda and some potato chips, and cased out the place. And yeah, this is what I want. I'm going to have this woman. And walked out, got in the car, and waited. There was a car that pulled up and left, and then these two buses with no passengers, I guess, came in, turned around, and left. 59-year-old Margie Rogers and her husband owned and operated a little country store and gas station in Thompson Springs, Utah, called Rogers Roost Service Station and Store, which is about a five-hour drive of the area in Wyoming where that woman was almost attacked by Jablonski. It's in the eastern part of central Utah, about 40 minutes north of Moab, which is, if you recall, where Gabby Petito and her killer were stopped in August of 2021. I believe that's the first time I ever heard of Moab. It's a very sparsely populated area of Utah. Thompson Springs, where Margie and her husband owned that country store and gas station, today the population is 104. I couldn't find what it was in 1991, but in 2011, it was at an all-time low of only 11 people. It did spike back up in 2017 with 170, but now 
it's back down to 104. So it's sparse. Margie and her husband had been operating this business for a long time, and she really didn't need to be there and work, but was helping out and was on the verge of retiring. In a documentary about this, a reporter being interviewed said that Margie was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I know how you and I feel about that sort of statement because there was nothing wrong about where Margie was or what she was doing. She was where she was supposed to be doing what she was supposed to be doing year in and year out. I get it, but she was absolutely not wrong about any of this. Jablonski happened upon the Rogers roost and he would make himself the last customer of Margie's life. It was Saturday, April 27th, 1991. And like she had done so many times before, Margie woke up early that Saturday morning. She got ready and headed out to the gas station and to the store to open up for the day. They're just off Interstate 70. It's a major freeway that cuts east and west through the middle of the lower 48, with its western terminus at Interstate 15 in western Utah, and it goes through Colorado, Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, with its eastern terminus being at the infamous Leakin Park, where the body of Heyman Lee was discovered, the victim and central character, or who should have been the central character of 2014's hit podcast serial. And I like how I'm finding some of these stories that some of us may not have necessarily heard of before, yet it takes us to places where stories we have very much heard of before had taken place. Other notable cases that involve Interstate 70 include a series of unsolved murders in the early 1990s in several Midwestern states where the killer has been referred to as the I-70 killer. Also, the DC and Beltway snipers were apprehended at an I-70 rest stop near Myersville, Maryland in 2002. So Jablonski is going along wherever America's highways are going to take him, I guess. And he ended up in Utah. He made his way to this little service station in this sparsely populated town of Thompson Springs where he finds Margie. It was about 7 in the morning. He had been parked there. I don't know for how long, but he was there looking and waiting for just the right time, or should I say the wrong time. Margie had just arrived for the business day. As he watched, she flipped the sign from closed to open. He went inside, and Margie was the only person around. So I walked back in the store, gun cocked in my pants. I got some coffee. She sat with her back to me. She got up and she asked if there was anything else I needed or wanted. I said no. I turned and walked around the store a little bit. Then I reached in my shirt, turned back around, shot her in, I guess the body somewhere. I shot her in the head. She fell to the floor. I walked around, opened up the cash register, and took all the bills out. Looked underneath to see if there was any extra money. I ripped open her blouse. Pulled her bra up over her big, gorgeous breast. Fondled and fondled them. Her eyes were rolling. They were still blinking like she was looking around. So I shot her through the temple. 
and the blood oozed out the side of her nose. Yeah, old girl, I got your life. Being kind and cordial to her first customer of the day, once he picked up the items that he had wanted, Margie asked this man if there was anything else that she could help him with. After he said no, he shot her in the head. He raped her, robbed her, robbed the store, and left. And from there, this man was back on the road once again. He was in the wind. This now takes us to Sunday, April 28th. It had been six days since he had murdered Fatima, five days since he had murdered Eva and Carol, and one day since he murdered Margie. Jablonski found himself another 784 miles, 1,260 kilometers, nearly 12 hours further east in the middle of Kansas, an hour north of Wichita, BTK's hometown and killing grounds, Dennis Rader. Our swatting episode also took place in Wichita, if you remember that case. There was this gamer in California who went to prank another gamer by way of swatting, having the police sent to his house in Kansas, but ended up giving a fake address and it turned out to be the home of an innocent man named Andrew Finch, and Wichita police ended up shooting him and killing him. That was episode 110, in case you missed it. Yeah, this is where Jablonski has ended up after this nearly week-long raping and killing spree. By this time, the all-points bulletins are out across the country. Every police department is on the lookout. The noose was tightening. A law enforcement officer who was driving along the interstate pulled off at a rest area in McPherson, Kansas. He noticed a vehicle parked there with its hood up a 1965 Ford Fairlane. But what stood out to the officer was the fact that it looked like the car had been spray painted with primer and it just looked weird. So he decided to ask the man standing near the car if he needed help or whatever. I mean, this car is a hoopty. I'll post pictures of it too. It became immediately apparent to the police officer that this man did not want to speak to him. So the officer went back to his patrol car got on his little computer and ran the California license plates that were on the vehicle. There are probably not a whole lot of shitty looking cars from California in them parts. And finally, at just the right time and just the right place, Jablonski pops up in the system as having warrants out of California for murder. So this officer radioed for some backup because he's realizing that he is dealing with a very dangerous individual. But Jablonski is also realizing something, that this officer might be on to him. And so he decided to slam his hood shut. He got back into his car and drove away. This police officer really had no idea at that point how long it was going to take for his backup to get there. He also had no idea the extent of Jablonski's crimes. All of those details weren't included. All he knew was this guy was wanted for murder. So the officer decided to follow, but he hung back about a mile or so, a half a mile or so. They're in this wide open space. It didn't necessarily need to turn into a police chase. There were only so many places this vehicle was going to be able to go at this point. This officer just wanted to keep a safe distance, but to not lose him until his backup arrived. 
and backup did get there within a couple of minutes. And once there were several more patrol vehicles behind this officer, they went ahead and turned on their lights and sirens. Unlike the average Californian, Jablonski did not give chase. He pulled over and was taken into custody without incident. The lead detective on Fatima's case was back in California that Sunday afternoon, about to crack open his first beer of the evening, when he got a call at his home from authorities in McPherson, Kansas. They were calling to tell him that they had Jablonski at their county jail. Detectives in Burlingame got the same call, and with that, everyone was finally able to breathe again. Everybody involved on the cases in California flew out and were in Kansas within a day. They talked to Jablonski, and for the most part, he was cordial and somewhat cooperative, but he was quiet, almost shy as he answered their questions. Not really what they were expecting, considering what they had seen what this man was capable of firsthand. Those images of Fatima, Eva, Carol, stabbed, shot, raped, skin carved, nipples cut, genitals mutilated. Not what they expected at all, this man with this calm demeanor, knowing what a sick killer he really is. That's because Jablonski is in a room full of men. He is a powerless, gutless coward that preyed on vulnerable women. He may have been large in stature, intimidating and overpowering when he was hunting women, but here, being made to answer to what he has done, he's a puny, feeble coward. And while he was there willing to engage in the small talk, he wasn't going to provide anyone with any kind of information or admissions of anything. On Wednesday, May 1st, investigators obtained a search warrant to look into Jablonski's vehicle. He had a student parking permit on his window for Desert Community College for the 1991 spring semester. The loaded 22 caliber revolver that he bought for $60 was under the driver's seat. The seats and upholstery were covered in dried blood. There was a roll of duct tape also stained in dried blood. In the back seat, they discovered a black belt with the ends of which the metal parts were fashioned to look like a rattlesnake. When they turned that belt over, it had the names and death dates handwritten in blue ink of the five women Jablonski had murdered. Linda, Fatima, Carol, Eva, Margie. They also found a tape recorder and tapes, and when they pushed play, they heard what you've heard throughout this story. I've only played portions. I could not have possibly played or have recorded most of what this man said on those tapes. It's simply more graphic than I'm willing to subject you to. The women who lost their lives to this demon just don't deserve that. The officers who listened to those recordings have been deeply affected and haunted by the things this man spoke. They'd never listened to anything like it prior to this case, nor would they ever for the rest of their careers. Jablonski preserved what he did and what he wanted to do on audio tape, and the world was able to get a glimpse into the depraved mind of this killer. The parts you heard 
were the least worst of it all. You can tell that this man was very pleased, very turned on by the things that he was talking about, and it has been strongly suggested that as he was talking on these tapes that he was masturbating to, reliving what he had done over and over again. Most importantly, the tapes provided the confession directly from Jablonski himself that they weren't able to get while interviewing him following his apprehension. It's how they learned of Margie's murder at Roger's Roost in the tiny town of Thompson Springs, Utah. On his rattlesnake belt, because Jablonski did not yet know her name, he listed her as elderly woman next to the date that he killed her. Amongst Jablonski's belongings, investigators also found an address book that had the addresses of two other women that he had been writing to from the time he was in prison to the time he was living in Indio. That address book was with him, and based on the direction that he was driving, it appeared that Jablonski was headed in their direction. Police were able to make contact with them to find them to be alive and well. Jablonski would later admit that if he had not been arrested, that was exactly what he was going to do, go after his other pen pals. In a perfect world, all of these women would have been saved, but the small victory was that the lives of countless others were saved by catching this man when they did. There is no doubt that Jablonski wasn't finished. It was decided amongst authorities in Utah, Southern and Northern California that Jablonski would first stand trial in San Mateo County, California, where he committed the double murder. Nobody was anxious to have their individual days in court with him. They just wanted this guy fast-tracked to death row ASAP. And at the time, that was the best place for that to happen. They just wanted to make sure that this guy was locked up and the key not only thrown away, but obliterated into nothingness. Jablonski stood trial for the murders of Eva and Carol in early 1994. Throughout his entire trial, Jablonski remained frozen and quiet. He never moved. He never looked at anyone. He never spoke. He didn't do anything. I'm not even sure the guy even blinked. That's just a portion of what the jury had to sit there and listen to. Jablonski was found guilty of murdering Carol and Eva, and they didn't take very long. He received two death sentences, so he was going to be headed back to San Quentin. This time, he'd be living on death row. Jablonski was then sent down to Riverside County where he was tried for Fatima's murder. He opted to plead guilty and was given a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. While Jablonski was indicted in Utah, I could not find any other information about whether or not he was tried for Margie's murder. Jablonski, however, would never see the inside of California's death chamber. Most California death row inmates these days do not. On Friday, December 27, 2019, 
73-year-old Jablonski was found dead inside his cell. His death is officially listed as being of unknown causes, but to make it officially official on this podcast, we can say that he died of being an old shitty person. And thus the world was made a little bit better of a place with him no longer in it. And while the lives of those he destroyed would never be the same, we can hope that on that day they felt a measure of relief that this man was on his way to hell. I would like to say thank you. I can't express how grateful I am for my friend and fellow podcasting host Bob Mata for lending his voice to this episode. I am certain that he made much more of an impact than I would have, and I'm thankful that he was able to do this. It wasn't easy because I know that I didn't even really want to speak those words out loud. His podcast is Defense Diaries. I've talked about him before on the show. I'm sure many of you are already fans and already love him, so I don't even have to tell you. I want to thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Thank you again, Bob, for all your help with this. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>